I decided that I can't work at the men anymore. They co-opt you. They use you. You don't grow. You just work for them. And it's stupid. You don't, you know, what are you doing that for? But I think nowadays we're not so interested in greatness. Or we think of greatness as somewhat different from the way people thought of it before feminism. What it means to me is when you say like something's post-feminist, it doesn't mean that the ideas of feminism are over, but it means that there was a defined period of time that was called feminists, and, and there are dates that give certain kinds of parameters for different histories and waves of feminism. So I was a member of a, a very famous clandestine women's group that worked at night and did not ever go out without masks on their face. Okay. And we so that was one. We can figure that one out. Okay. I was busy doing that. Uh-huh. Hello and welcome to Articulate It. I'm Shelley Justiman, and I work as an oral history intern at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Feminism is not a method or monolithic sociopolitical cause. It's an ongoing project to lay new foundations for equity while recovering voices that have been lost or elided along the way. In the arts, this means enabling women to create art that speaks to their experiences, connecting across humanity through the unique powers of the visual arts. Women's equality isn't a one-dimensional issue, and women of different national, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds, as well as sexual orientation, encountered an array of obstacles as they brought broader experiences into view through their work. Feminist practice isn't monolithic either, as there are many nuanced approaches to advocating for equity for people of all gender expressions, ensuring fair treatment for everyone, and not just women. Many individual artists made prominent efforts, and they also worked collectively, notably in organized groups like the Guerrilla Girls, an anonymous group of women artists formed in 1985 who wore guerrilla masks and brought attention to the sexist and racist shortcomings of institutions such as the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Activists' efforts coalesced around questions of identity as well as aim, such as the Women's Building in L.A., founded by Judy Chicago, Sheila DeBretville, and Arlene Raven in 1973, and which taught women's art history and fostered a new generation of feminist artists. Or Judy Baca's Social and Public Art Resource Center, founded in L.A. in 1976 with a public mandate rooted in the history of Mexican muralism. Difficulties emerged both in the form of barriers for active women artists in gallery, museum, educational, and scholarly settings, as well as general barriers that women faced in entering any public or professional space. In addition to requiring intense skill and study, art is also deeply intertwined with history, as artists find new ways to express and propagate history, and as there was no critical mass of celebrated women artists or scholars, it required a concentrated effort to turn the tide. Part of the feminist effort became recuperating women's work from history after years of neglect while laying the foundation for a more inclusive future. Besides the inertia of tradition, there were practical issues like earning a living and having a family, and women artists embraced a gamut of approaches for fulfillment in themselves and in their communities. In this episode, we'll survey a range of eddies and currents in the many feminisms that have shaped and continue to shape the American landscape today. Joan Semmel's nude self-portraits that play with notions of landscape have been hugely influential since her career took off in New York in the 1960s. A major proponent for women's agency in the world and the art market, Semmel detailed the perfect storm of insights that sparked her feminist revelation and how her work has unfolded since in her 2023 interview with Gail Levin. Spain was very formative to me in a lot of ways. First of all, understanding repression 
in terms of how the personal life was so connected to the political life and the fact that women's role in Spain was much more restricted than here. Uh, it was so blatant. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't sign a lease. You couldn't, you couldn't take a child over the border without your husband's consent. Oh, wow. It was amazing that you couldn't, I ha you couldn't sign a lease without your father or your husband's signature, mm. one or the other. Female signature wasn't worth anything. If you had a bank account, your husband could use your could use your bank account. You couldn't use his. Things of that nature. So the societal restrictions were much clearer than they were here. Uh, they were here, but they weren't as as open. Right. You had to be home before ten thirty or. There was a cop on the street, Sereno it was called. You had to clap your hands for the Sereno, and he would unlock the door for you to get in the house. Really? Yes, because that was dinner time, and you were supposed to be home by then if you were a decent woman. Oh, they were worried about streetwalkers. They worried about everything. <laughs> you know, that was really about control of everything. Mm. So, I mean, there were just lots and lots of things like that. And also the, the whole thing of the, the religious aspect of, of life there was very clear also. So all of that became very clear in my mind so that when I got back to the States, I was primed for feminism. And at the time in New York, pornography was uh, a new kind of thing. Uh, but I was convinced that most of the pornography was male-determined and that I personally couldn't respond to it in any way except by being negative. Was it also true that it took institutions like MoMA a while to kind of catch up and pay attention to feminist art and artists associated with feminism. I remember they had a big symposium, must be 20 years ago now, and they got a woman patron to pay for it. Did that kind of thing affect your renaissance, we could call it? Well, I, I think that all the feminist uh, agitation that we did in the early days was cumulative, and it kept building and building. And gradually, but very gradually, uh, the institutions began to take notice. So there was, I remember, uh, I don't remember it exactly, the, the Guerrilla Girls also in the 80s came out very strong. I worked with them for a couple of years also, and we did uh, all kinds of things to make that point. And that, I think, had a real effect because what the Guerrilla Girls did was they, they made it clear that it was not so much personal 
uh, discrimination as it was institutional and commercial discrimination that prevented women from getting in, so that the galleries and the museums were instrumental in keeping women out of the system instead of bringing them in. And now they have to make up for their terrible deficit in collecting and, women's and now, And now they finally are trying to compensate for so, for some of that and uh, paying attention. And aside from that, I have to say that just as a feminist and as a woman, I used to joke around when I was, we were struggling early on. It was always clear that occasionally the museums would uh, pay attention to some very old woman, somebody who was in their 80s or 90s. And I always said that, well, you have to hang on by your fingernails until you're old enough to no longer be sexually threatening to these men. And that was part of the psychology behind allowing us into the group once we were 80. <laughs> I have to say that uh, a, a lot of friends uh, have, at this in this period, gotten exposure and success uh, that took a long time to get. I, I say to so, some of those who are still struggling uh, for visibility that you really, really have to just stay the course. You never know when the timing just comes together of the right gallery, the right person, uh, the right moment that your work can be seen in a way that it will be appreciated. It doesn't mean that it's any better or any worse. It's just that momentary, at a particular moment, there's, there's access. There's something to say for being resilient, isn't there? It's about being resilient, but it requires this one other thing that art that women have had a lot of trouble gaining, and it's why feminism has been so important, and that is a confidence in one's own vision, and that one's own vision is worthwhile. Yes, I really agree with that. Yeah, and uh, your trajectory is such a wonderful illustration of that. It's been a great vindication, and I'm very grateful to have been alive to see it, because I have friends who died before they had the pleasure of seeing their work out there, and it's out there now. Born in Venezuela, Luchita Hurtado was a tremendous force for women's autonomy in paint. She made her career in Southern California, where her canvases brought together a huge array of visual influences in a singular lexicon. 
In her 1994 oral history interview with Amy Winter and Paul Karlstrom, Hurtado talked about her origins in art and the importance of solidarity with women artists. I started to draw, actually, when I was about 10 or 12. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do any. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I had a very um, stern grandmother. And if she saw you idle, idling, she would say, you know, idle hands tempt the devil. And she would make you undo a, a, a hem of a skirt and do it over again, you know, because you were not supposed to just be dreaming or thinking or... So it was was not approved of. Yeah. Especially women. Men, you know, that was another matter. If a man was doing just sitting, looking out into space, oh, he's dreaming up something fantastic. Double standard. Completely. And and were women not only not supposed to dream or, or be artists, they had their tasks. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. To them there was, uh, expectations. Uh, yes, yes, and, yes. You're when right. I first married, my mother said to me, you have married your cross, now you bear it. Because of the, who he No, 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 because this is their yes. the attitude to marriage. Mm-hmm. Well, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Paul, you know, life has a way of holding up your work, too. And it has, in my life, certainly, it's difficult to... I've never been able to pursue a career properly, you know. I'm always involved in in life too much. And so I write poetry, I, I paint, I do all these things. But I'm not running in any way after a dealer to show or to publish or, or to do any of these things. I, I don't think it's it's... In a way, I think I'm even afraid of this, you see. Uh, when the women's movement came about here in this town, um, it was a, a, a very, very strange because uh, Joyce Kozloff, who is a, a very interesting artist, was here with her husband, Max, and um, she said, the women have to get together. Women painters have to get together. And she invited all, all the artists, all the women that she knew, to um, an afternoon at her house. And we all went around the room, and everybody gave their name. You gave your name, and you, and you said, you know, what you did. You're either a writer, you're a painter, you're a sculptor. And it came my turn and I said, at that time, I, I was Luchita Pollen, I said, artist. And, and I remember uh, June Wayne from the other side of the room said, Luchita, what? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, June. <laughs> Luchita. <laughs> when was this? This was... I mean, this was 71. Boy, June uh, gives no quarter. <laughs> Luchita, what? I'll never forget it. So it's always been a problem to me, you know. For instance, you know, today's my life today. I have very little time to paint. We're either going to one place or coming from one place, and I have, you know, the... 
there's a lot of work involved in in uh, entrances and exits. Mm -hmm. And you're usually and the one arranging, that's responsible. And I'm the one that's responsible. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk about that because I think it's a it's a question that interests many people, and we're all mm -hmm. much more aware of now. I mean, here you thought of yourself to some extent, uh, think of yourself as a professional, or at least uh, able to operate in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Chose to be an artist, and yet you've lived uh, a kind of life, I won't say a conventional one at all, but certainly in terms of your domestic life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mother, wife, yes. a homemaker, mm -hmm. grandmother, yeah. all these things. And, you know, you know, what about that? Uh, men are in domestic situations as well, and yet, generally speaking, and, and I in no way want to sort of prime you for, you know, your own response to this. But I think everybody acknowledges, including most men, that uh, there is a, a difference in terms of demands upon time mm -hmm. and the opportunity to even within a domestic, uh, a nice family situation, pursue a career. You know, how did you find it uh, through all the years for yourself? I really haven't ever resented any time I've given because I don't think it's time loss. I think it's it's bigger than any of it. I think it's important that I, I paint. It's important for me to read. It's important for me to write. It's important for me to hear music. It's so important for me to have children. I knew at a very early age that, that children were very, very number one in my life. As a matter of fact, I told my mother <laughs> when I was in my teens, I said, you know, I'm going to have children right away. I want a baby, and I really think that's the most important. And I said, I'm not, I'm not interested even if, whether I'm married or not. If I need a child, I'll have a child. And she crossed herself, and she said, what priest have I hit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Amos blazed her own trail through vibrant canvases and prints that told profound stories about injustice and her own experiences. In the 1960s, she was a member of Spiral, a prominent group of African-American artists in New York. And in her 2011 oral history, she told Patricia Spears-Jones about her experience with Spiral and about the power of women's activism and friendship over the course of her career. Did you feel strange being the only woman in the group? I didn't have the sense that it was unusual for me to be there. I did question why they didn't have Vivian Brown, and I brought that up a couple of times because Vivian was a friend of mine and she was a crackerjack artist. I understood that they did not want Faith Ringgold. Um, they did not want two or three other artists of, you know, great note. They just didn't want them. Uh, Vivian wasn't invited. I just don't know. And so what I thought of at the time was, well, they wanted somebody who was going to go and, you know, bring in coffee and run <laughs> errands and stuff like that. So I put my foot down from the first day 
And I just yelled and screamed and cursed just like they did. And I did not do any of those things. Okay. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was as close to being one of the boys as you could get. Yeah, I you guess. Know? I guess. So. <laughs> well, I guess the other side of that. So one of the questions I asked was, since you were involved in some of these feminist actions, were you involved in a sort of feminist I mean, I still remember the feminist uh, consciousness raising sessions and stuff. And were you involved in any of that? Was there an art world uh, equivalent? Well, the whole time that I was doing Spiral, I'm not ever supposed to say this. Where does the Smithsonian print this stuff? Oh, it goes everywhere. So if you don't want um, to say it, then don't say it. Yeah. Uh, so I was a member of a, a very famous clandestine women's group that worked at night and did not ever go out without masks on their faces. Okay. Then we so that out. was one. We can figure that one out. Okay. I was busy doing that. Uh, and there were other feminist groups that I was a member of as a cover because everybody knew that I was involved in a lot of things. I guess we're, I'm just trying to figure out, did this in some way, as you're moving through the 70s, did this start to inform uh, the the way you were going to start, because you started teaching in 1980 at the Mason Gross School, did this, was that that's part of what was informing the way in which you were going to carry out your pedagogy? I'm just wondering. I don't think it had anything to do with it. I think that uh, being female faculty was, um, at Rutgers, Mason Gross, was a privilege and a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty young, but I had been to such great school, mm -hmm. from Antioch to London to all those things that I had learned. Not so much just the activism stuff, but just the friendships mean for you. You talked about Norman Lewis, and mm. so I'm trying to, I'm just curious about what did Vivian, as a fellow artist, give to you in terms of friendship? It was the friendship. It was the being able to talk. And to know so many people in in the world of art, and to and to be able to commiserate about um, the only thing the difference between us was I had children and she didn't, but that uh, didn't make us that different because being artists was what we were and what we felt we were. I read a lot, and I I read about women writers. Mm -hmm. They have the same problems that I think that that women painters have, which is that they're kind of underground and people can not know them. I wonder who, you know, if we did a, a straw poll, who would come out as being the most important, women artists or women writers? I guess it would, to me, it would be women writers because books are not as expensive as paintings. They're harder to find, you know. Um, they're harder to find the publisher. But once they're out there, everybody can have them. You know, they're within a they're within ownership mm -hmm. terms. They're cheaper. Whereas women artists, yeah, you can just stumble over them. You really can.
Miriam Shapiro was a major force for feminism in the arts starting in the 1970s through her painting, sculpture, and community-building efforts. Shapiro collaborated with Judy Chicago to develop the California Institute of the Arts and subsequently on Woman House, a monumental performance and exhibition space that brought women's intersecting domestic, social, sexual, and artistic concerns to the fore in 1972. While reflecting in her 1989 oral history interview with Ruth Bowman, Shapiro gave insight to the figures who inspired her work and the great social aims of her efforts in the art world. These women were all heroines, are all heroines. Sure, it was her life as well as her work, and also her attitudes uh, towards society and her particular way of being a feminist. For example, she had she had a lot of trouble joining groups. A lot of women have trouble joining groups. But that doesn't stop you from expressing your point of view in whatever manner you choose to do it. And that's what she did. She made her little pamphlets and she wrote her, you know, her. she did so much journalism. She uh, She published books, you know, and she wrote her own books. She and her husband published a gift. And then ultimately she took her life. And all of that made for a, a genuine kind of inspiration you know, to women who were, at that time, being so conscious of the fact that they were women and that they had a history and that they, you know, needed to have role models and all this and that, you know. Everything was coming together at the same time. You asked me before, and I don't think we went into it, why I did, did I think that California was a particularly fertile ground for all of this to happen. And I do, I do believe that. I mean, I don't think it could have ever happened in New York. New York is hell-bent on separating one person from another. And in California, there was a chance for us to get together. And it was as simple as that, in a way. Ruth, I hate pieties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate saying things should be like this or like that. I mean, when you get to be my age, you realize how there isn't black and white. That the, the, Most of us live in an enormous area of gray. And that that gray itself has incredible numbers of shadings. So you can't say a feminist should be like this or people should be like that. Or if you're a Marxist, you should only wear black, as some (laughs) of my friends do. You know, I mean, you can't legislate all these things. You just have to take people as they are and learn from them. But you used the word democracy earlier. Yeah, because I think what we women did was to democratize art. Because I think today, a lot of what goes on in galleries, uh, I'm not saying it's successful, is a democratization of art. Judy Baca's murals have transformed narrative art, especially in California, as has her Educational, Social, and Public Art Resource Center, or SPARC. In her 1986 oral history with fellow artist Amalia Mesa Baines, Baca talked about the importance of imagery in her work and her connections with women's art groups in Los Angeles in the 1970s and beyond. What other major influences around the the forming of SPARC really affected you? It's a women's Mm -hmm. organization in some people's eyes, besides being, um, you know, Mm cross-cultural. Was that a period of time in which your associations with the women's movement were stronger? 
than they were. I, I was leading kind of schizophrenic life around the time of Mia Bolita. In the chronology, it was Mia Bolita and then Wabash Recreation Center, the Medusa Head, and and then the next image was the uh, the series was the Mountain Second Street mural, which I tried a large scale, four hundred foot long piece with a large number of people. That was a predecessor, I think, to the Great Wall, mm-hmm. uh, with some sixty five people involved in that process. Um, and that was on the Little Sisters of Poor Convalescent Home wall. I was working in the East Side, and by that time, was living in Venice. And I had this dual life in which in Venice I had come to a place in which I had left my husband from, from the San Fernando Valley. I stopped being a housewife. I never really was a housewife, no. as you would say it, but I, I had stopped being married. I was in I had moved to Venice because it was a sort of freer atmosphere. And I moved smack dab into a building of the the landlord of which was a feminist who invited me promptly to a CR meeting. Consciousness, right? Yeah, consciousness rating racing meeting. So I began to, for the first time in my life, meet other professional women, women who were doctors and lawyers and biologists and chemists, and and I had never met anybody like that. I was like completely amazed at the possibility of what was available for women. And the images somehow, either subconsciously, had become feminist images. I mean, I was starting to be known for making images in the neighborhood that were the counterpoint to the Adelitas with the shoulder straps down and the yeah. breasts exposed with the straps of bullets across them, which is what the men were making, which was a sexist kind of image of a Mexican woman making some kind of deference to her as a revolutionary. So the Medusa head, in contrast, was an image of a of a almost a goddess image of a, a woman whose hair turns into snakes and flowers. It comes from the kind of Yerona image. In the period of time of the consciousness raising groups, mm-hmm. what people began to affect you? What, what associations with other women artists? I, I had this problem at this point in which I was sort of divided because I, I had this life in East, the East Side, which began after three o'clock. And then I had a, a life in Venice, which was associated with other feminists. And it was the, the early formation of a place called Women's Space in the West Side. Mm-hmm. And Judy Chicago was involved in that. And the women's that was really the predecessor to the women's building. Mm-hmm. And the feminist studio workshop was happening in at Cal Arts. And um Christina, who was had become a volunteer, who signed up just in one of my projects, as I was trying to organize the Venice community, I, I she was in the feminist studio workshop under Judy Chicago and listed me in her projects in a certain way as I enlisted her in mine on the east side. So I did things with her. I helped her in some of her photo documentation projects. And I began to get a feminist education through my CR group and through these other women. But I always felt like I was a visitor in a certain way because there were not that many Latin women or third third world women at all. And so I would go and listen. And I really felt like they have some things to offer me because in my other world, in the East Side, in the area of Latin culture, and Chicano culture, I was really an oddity. I wasn't the girlfriend of one of the men, and uh, I was a, an artist in myself, and I was not either treated seriously mm-hmm. by the men or considered as a peer. So I wasn't getting the support from them or anything. So I, I, I found what I lacked there 
within the feminist movement who women who other women who are willing to be interested in treat me fair treat me in an equal way Alexandra Uaz is a media theorist who has been writing about feminism and queerness for decades. She currently teaches at Brooklyn College CUNY. In her 2017 oral history with Theodore Kerr, she described her own trajectory in activism and how the AIDS crisis informed her values. People say now that AIDS is over, it's not. But, you know, I imagine there'll be a time in the future when it's over in the sense that it will be a disease that has a cure. It won't afflict huge segments of people in the world and in America. So in, a, in that future, people, I, will, I look forward to people looking back to hear and gain insight how politically and personally engaged and enraged humans contributed to the end of something that they despise. Mm-hmm. So that's one audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when that will be. Mm -hmm. I don't do my work anticipating it, but I assume as long as the earth still exists, that it will happen, that AIDS will be over. But I guess the other audience in the future are feminist and queer and anti-racist activists engaged in whatever their despised, unjust, illicit, unattended to blight may be. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope they get some sustenance and solace from the fact that disenfranchised people before them use the power of our intellect and the grace of our humanity and our beautiful and complicated art and our passion in the streets to respond and change something that mattered to us. So that, I suppose. My, my feminism was, was lodged in a nascent project that later is what we call queer studies and queerness. But it was a world that we built, many of us. Again, you know this history that it, AIDS activism leads to queerness, queer studies, queer activism. But I was in an, I was in a, the nascent world from which that was going to emerge. It was a world of ideas and a world of activism. And I was a college activist mm-hmm. and I was an intellectual in a stew where those things were evolving. And AIDS was part of that as well, nascently. So in, in a very quiet but known way, the world was beginning to shift. This very staid world that I lived in, that I was on the edge of. I was in college in a very staid place, as staid as it could be, as normative as possible. Mm. And I was friends with people on the edge. And the people on the edge were feminists, closeted gays and lesbians, artists, <laughs> people of color, people politicized by our identities or by, by our politics or both. And it was the heyday of identity politics. So often our identities and our politics. Outsiders. So the outsiders were either were strange for any number of reasons. And I, again, that's like the first place where I was in that small group of outsiders. I'm like, here's where I want to be. Even though I saw the, what the normative middle could offer. And this is where art comes in for me too. So it's one 
becomes one cluster in college and stays that cluster for the rest of my life. Also based in Brooklyn, Chitra Ganesh is an artist whose work across drawing, video, and installation celebrates epic and intimate relationships. In her 2020 oral history with Ben Gillespie, she described her mural installation at the Leslie Lohman Museum in New York and how the crises in the city shaped her and her work. So I'm doing that. And then I'm my own commission solo exhibition at the Leslie Lohman Museum was postponed. So that is set to open now in about a month and a half. And that was postponed by like several months and it was unclear when it was going to open. But I feel very, very lucky with that project because it's a series installations so it's almost like a mural that wraps around uh, 10 windows of the museum so at this moment particularly it's extremely meaningful because it's something that can be accessed from outside and doesn't require entry into an enclosed space and can be seen by a much broader audience of people i mean anyway Museums have more of a specific audience than the street does, but I think at this time that has shrunk even more because of these institutions being closed and just very slowly starting to reopen now. And has the delay made you think any differently about that project? I mean, it sounds like the form is really ideally suited for people in the city right now. But but what about the the work itself and thinking about queer representation and feminine representation in 2020? Yeah, it really made me... Well, so the project was about, was obviously going to be exploring those issues of queer and representation of queerness, of feminists, of femininity. But it was also going to draw on different kinds of utopias and thinking about the idea of queer utopia and thinking about this city in particular and gentrification and like a number of other issues where how the architecture and sex and sexuality can be expressions of power and resistance. So I think that Yeah, the pandemic kind of stopped me in my tracks because a lot of what I understand um, to be like queer life, queer joy, queer activism is about bodies coming together in public space, like, or private space, but in privatized public spaces like clubs and other kinds of bars or institutions, but also on the street. Um, also in public sex. I mean, so there's like a lot of different ways in which obviously the pandemic would and and the social distancing and the radical rearrangement of intimacy and space would affect the work. I think definitely I wanted to um, pause before I continued working on the piece. I took a little bit of a break um, because I felt like it was important to figure out how to, um, I mean, as it is in general in life, but also with this pandemic to respond rather than react and to kind of figure out what that response would be in a more thought out way. And a lot of my own experiences of approaching this time, um, both as an artist and as a human, have to do with being born and raised in New York and having lived here for much of my life. 
and also having experienced September 11 here in New York. So that was the last time I kind of, I mean, the financial crash and there were other things in between, but in terms of something where the city stopped in a way that I had never seen in my life, the last time that happened was around September 11th. And I know then as now that there were a lot of different kinds of modes of expression that were very necessary, but that were like the kind of the very first layer of reaction to what was going on. And also the question of how do you, how do you like talk about or create in relation to a traumatic event when that event is still ongoing underway? Art historian Lucy Lepard has been a major influence in bringing more women's work into the mainstream. She was a key figure in the Heresies Collective, a group that published an eponymous journal and raised awareness around women's social, political, economic, and artistic causes. In her 2011 oral history with Susan Heinemann, Lepard outlined some of her own journey with feminism and how she worked in community. So I went off to Spain and saved up all this money, and Ethan and I went off, and Seth was in Europe someplace, and we were off again thing. And we stopped in Paris for a few days and then we took the train down to Spain and, and we got to this little village somehow. I mean, it rented a car, rented a motorcycle. That's another long story. <laughs> um, and I, I was writing this really abstruse little book, but feminism was chewing at me, sort of. And as I was writing it, I found it was slightly autobiographical. There was a character I sort of identified with. A, nobody had names, of course, of beings, but very conceptual. And uh, it really, writing this this thing converted me to feminism in a funny way. Hmm. And it, the book became a lot less abstract. And it was, it was this book called I See Slash You Mean, which I only published years later with uh, Chrysalis Press in the late 70s. So I rewrote it and it became a sort of feminist tracked at one point, but it was still very abstract with a lot of descriptions of photographs. Do you have a copy of that? I do. <laughs> God, I, I copy edited it. But yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> oh, funny. Yes, because that was, of course, that was heresies. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that that was the book that, that in some peculiar process made me a feminist. And I came back and Poppy and uh, Faith Ringgold and Poppy Johnson and Brenda Miller who had all been involved with the coalition, had started thinking about how to organize because war was not being successful. War was, they weren't that involved in the art world in a funny way, and so they, nobody would listen to them. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we would, so they dragged me in as soon as I got back from my Spain and Maine in the fall of 70. And uh, I was converted. <laughs> and we started Ad Hoc Women Artists Committee. And that was the Whitney protests. We did some good stuff on, on that. Well, and then we started Heresies in 75. That was the same year as Printed Matter started. Oh, no, no, 76 was, was Heresies. 
And we started with just, again, sitting at the kitchen table with Joyce Kozlov's house, as I remember, everybody remembers it differently, and thinking, well, we should have a, a voice, and we, we wanted to get, fem feminism was beginning to kind of flag, and, and we wanted to have something more political, and it was in a, in a real publication, and so, so more theoretical, more political. And so somebody said, well, it needs a voice and a space. So Mimi was going to start the school, which she did briefly, and then we started the publication and the feminist art. What was it called? Art Institute or something? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that didn't last that long. Mimi had arrived from California a year that year, I think, and she already knew Joyce and me and so forth. So anyway, so Heresy's, yeah, so we had, a, we had meetings for about a year, open meetings, and picked up people as they sort of wandered in and out of the meetings. And at one point we said, okay, we got to start the collective and whoever wants to be in it is in it. And that was about 15 of us, nine of whom were Aries. <laughs> I it was like that. <laughs> I didn't know that. It was a bad idea. <laughs> so there, the lesbian issue and then Harmony did the big lesbian show at 112 Green, which was the first lesbian show in New York though. And then the issues came rolling out. One of my favorites was Mother's Mags and Movie Stars. <laughs> and why, why? It was, we had some of the most fascinating, it was supposed to be about class. We had some of the most fascinating discussions with this broad, I mean, that makes a 26-year age difference between the youngest and the oldest. And, and we were trying to figure out how, I mean, America doesn't like to think about class, so we're trying to think, okay, how do we define class from a feminist viewpoint? So we started to look at our mothers and grandmothers and, Everybody wanted to be working class. <laughs> and, you know, well, they, they they had a farm, so they were in class. Yeah, but they owned the farm. So does that make more? I mean, you know, it's, and we just went through all these endless little permutations of these, these. The discussions were really interesting. And I think the issue came out well, too. And so forth. So, anyway, that's... Which issues do you remember best? Well, I remember on the ninth issue that we power prop up again. Yes, yes. yes I like that one, too, man. There were a few, I mean, if spaced every now and then would be these sort of really political issues. Um, uh, we never really were that theoretical. We had, I mean, but we had amazing people writing for it. Sally Stein, Chalice Glendinning, all kinds of, uh, you know, go, go through it and you'd find uh, the sort of usual suspects and a lot of other really good scholars were, were in there. And we turned down things by good scholars, too. <laughs> I mean, I too dry or too ordinary or whatever. And each member how each editorial collective statement in the front of each one got into it again, you know, like, well, we didn't agree about anything, but we <laughs> And the crit self-crit just drove me nuts with, like, consensus. <laughs> I've never been that good at that. I love collaboration, but when it gets standardized, I'm not fond of it. But anyway, the crit self-crit was at the end of every meeting. We went around and everybody said how, how they felt the meeting had gone and how slighted they felt because somebody talked too much and nobody listened to me and <laughs> so and so said something that hurt my feelings and there were tears and rage. Linda Nochlin rocked the art historical boat with her 1971 essay, What There Have Been No Great Women Artists, which called upon women to reform the institutions of art. 
In her 2010 oral history with James McElhenney, she reflected on the scope and attitude of feminism, as well as the changes she'd seen in institutions throughout her career. I mean, I'm not going to change from a feminist to a misogynist, <laughs> that's for sure, no matter what evidence is offered to me. Because, and I don't think feminism is a methodology. I mean, that's a lot of crap. You can't have a feminist methodology. Yeah, let's speak about that a little bit, because yeah. since the late 60s, there is a, um, there have been a number of, of programs instituted in women's studies yeah, sure. and gender politics, Absolutely. gender studies. Um, and uh, there's a museum in Washington, the National Museum of Women in the Arts. Was this effective, do you think, in leveling you know, the playing field? I think it was. I think absolutely. But I don't think it's a methodology. It's a politics. Feminism is a political position. But there's not a method. You, there are a lot of methods that feminists use. I don't think there's a methodology between called feminists. That's ridiculous. How could there be? Well, I don't know that anybody's advancing that idea. Well, Who, people sort of suggest there is, but I don't think they're very good thinkers. It's a, it's a. I mean, con gender is always there, right. either in one's own position or another. Um, I try to be a, a sharp and careful and unsloppy and undogmatic thinker. But I do believe in justice uh, based on gender. And uh, a lot of my thinking is in some way conditioned by this, which doesn't mean that I'm going to pretend that uh, a third-rate woman artist is better than Michelangelo, whom I don't like anyway, but I know he's good. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think. Uh, but I think nowadays we're not so interested in greatness, which was the subject of mm -hmm. my... Or we think of greatness as somewhat different from the way people thought of it before how, feminism. How would you define it today? I think today it's interesting artists, art, artists that raise issues, artists that make you think and wonder and delight and so on. But we don't necessarily think of them as great in the sense that they're like patriarchal lawgivers in the arts and we have to follow them and so on. I think the field is more open now, that postmodernism. In her 2012 oral history, Anne Wilson, a Chicago-based multimedia artist, gave perspective on the cycles of activism that accrete into feminism as she spoke with Mijuri Dell. Particularly the younger generation, there's, there's lots of uh, politics, debate, that is part of this renewed interest in craft. It's not just about lifestyle. It might be about lifestyle. It might be about renewed interest in collaboration and social experiments, which was so key and important in the 70s as well. So I think there is a fair dose of that. But it's also many of these individuals that I'm that we've been talking to who come and lecture at our school, L.J. Roberts, um, I could name more names, but see the word craft in alignment with the politics of queer culture. Mm -hmm. They see craft in alignment with DIY culture and personal agency and politics. 
alignments with um, histories of marginalized work of women or, or laborers of both genders uh, wanting to raise issues about the politics of labor and how things are made. Uh, journals like uh, the Journal of Modern Craft and the Journal like Textile, the Journal of Cloth and Culture, with regular essays by so many different kinds of writers. And the audience for those journals is really, it, it, I think it moves between what might be called craft and different kind of definitions of craft and contemporary fine art and design. I'm sort of have taken the word, I'm sort of interested in this idea of post-craft and I'm not a fan of um, needing to uh, whatever, uh, you know, whatever, have my own terms used by others. But what it means to me is when you say like something's post-feminist, it, feminist, it doesn't mean that the ideas of feminism are over, but it means that there was a defined period of time that was called feminists, and, 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 and there are dates that give certain kinds of parameters for different histories and waves of feminism. With her paintings on canvas or quilt that interrogate tradition across the spectrum of human experience, Faith Ringgold has been a leader in making space available for Black women in the arts. In her 1989 oral history interview with Cynthia Nadelman, she described the threads of activism that frayed and came together in her early career. And Carol Green was the consultant for that. So she wrote a letter thanking him or commending him for hiring Carol Green. I have the letter. I have the letter. I have a copy of the letter, but it didn't say anything about, you know, I support the wing and I think it's wonderful that you're going to do this with my husband or whatever. She didn't do that. Right. She did this other thing. And um, so we didn't get it. We didn't get that. Yeah. And so we got the show for Romy Bearden and uh, Richard Hunt. I was not invited to the opening because it was thought that I would be still angry and maybe do something. And um, and that's, did that show happen? Seventy one, yeah. You know that 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 was the end of that that kind of thing. It might happen. It might still happen uh -huh. again. You know, but it will be done differently. Right. See that 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 period had its own special way of doing things, uh -huh. and we were right on top of everything. Yeah. You know, we I worked so hard. I didn't do any art for a couple of years, because everything I had went into working on that museum by me. Yeah. So after that, I decided that I can't work at the men anymore. Yeah. They co-opt you, they use you, and you don't grow. You mm -hmm. just work for them. Yeah. And it's stupid. You don't, you know, what are you doing that for? Because before that, I had said, look, I, you know, I don't want to get involved in any women's movement. Because I had been invited to come to the first meeting of now uh -huh. in 1967. And I had said, look, I, no, I don't get to go to that. Yeah. Right. I mean, I have, I have different priorities. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a black woman. I'm interested in black people. I mean, what is this women's thing? Right. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to that. But nobody ever embraces a political movement until it touches their needs. Mm -hmm. They have to have a need 
And at that time, I was not in touch with what my need was right. or the fact that I was not going to be able to achieve it in the way that I was going about it. Right. But you were I had to try. go through, see, I really had to go through all of these experiences. And later on, when I talked to other black women and they said, oh, well, I don't really think that, you know, that the women's movement relates to black women. And I said to myself, well, I can understand how they feel because they haven't walked in my moccasin. They haven't done what I've done. They haven't been out there supporting these men like I have. Right. They haven't gotten a show for Lonely Vision at the at the museum in I did that. Yeah. Okay. And got credit. I know for a fact he wouldn't have gotten that show without me. Yeah. It took all that dedication and all that time and all those years, all those demonstrations, all that typing, all those flyers, yeah. all that running around doing all that stuff, all those meetings with those trustees. All those times in order for that to happen. And I don't want, that's not my life. That's not what I'm here for. You know, I don't know all of what I'm here for, but I know I'm not, I'm not just here for that. I'm here to help to make change, but not in the process of that, not to eliminate myself. Right. I am part of the change that I want to make. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie, that's me, and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, which was composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. A special thank you goes to Emily Shapiro, the formidable managing editor of the Archives of American Art Journal, for germinating this episode idea. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu slash support. Thank you.